To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. In this podcast, I'll present seven precepts for single parents. Precepts one and four are especially for single parents, but the rest apply to all parents. I chose the word precept rather than rules because precept means advisory guidelines, which sounded preferable to me. I myself am a single parent of four children, three girls and a boy, ages 9 through 15. And I've created this list based on three things. What research has found in psychology, what I've observed with my patients over 15 years of practice, and my own experience. Research is a big first here, because with my psychology practice, and in general, I have so much respect for the slow and deliberate process that scientists use. Most of them don't get credit. A few do, but they're all contributing to a body of work within my field, which I respect and I hope to share in a way that will be understandable and useful to my listeners. What do, we, what do we want for our children? At a minimum, we want them to be safe and healthy. And more than that, we want them to become productive contributors to society and to our planet. We want them to be happy. We want them to flourish. We want them to be loved. And we want them to have the satisfaction of fulfilling their deepest individual missions. May these seven precepts for single parents help us to lead our children to these things. The first precept for single parents. Maintain a neutral or positive stance about the other parent even when you don't want to. Translation, don't say a bad word about the other parent. Here are three main things that research has found about this topic. One, damage from divorce doesn't come from the physical separation from parents, but more so from the child witnessing conflict between the parents. And worse, from putting the child in the middle of the conflict not only allowing the child to hear the fighting, but to participate in the fighting and to take sides. Two, in a serious scenario, sometimes children develop black and white views of one parent. For example, they'll decide that this parent is the bad parent and the other one is the good parent. When this happens, our best course of action is to help the child create a more reality-based viewpoint. Humans are complex, and most of us on the planet have both positive and negative qualities. If your child sees the other parent as all bad, guess what? They might flip the switch like that on their friends or their future spouse one day, too. They won't learn to sit with imperfection to forgive, and to be tolerant. 
Amy Baker did a qualitative retrospective study on adults who were alienated from one parent as children. An alienated child refuses to see the other parent. This is an extreme case. Baker found that these children, when they became adults, had self-hatred, self-blame, guilt. 70% of them had depressive episodes, and one-third of them reported having serious problems with drugs or alcohol during adolescence as a way to cope with their painful feelings. I hope to discuss solutions to these sorts of serious scenarios, including the overcoming barriers approach in a future podcast with a guest that I have in mind who I haven't asked yet. Remember at age five when we worshipped mom and dad and thought that they truly were perfect? As we grew up, we realized they aren't perfect, as no one is. But for some people, this can be a moment of crisis, and I've worked through this a lot with patients. Will they cut off their parent for being imperfect, or will they accept them in spite of the imperfection? In the best arrangement, I'm able to assist the patient to accept the parent as they are and to be grateful for what it is that the parent can and does give them, even if they don't meet all of the patient's needs. The third piece of research. Psychological damage is caused when a child or adolescent finds themselves being the one to take care of the parent's emotions. We're talking about the child who the parent tells them everything, like a friend, and shows their woundedness. And, of course, they bring out compassion in the child who wants to take care of them. But these children, instead of thinking about children's things, like their friends, their school, their sport, instead they have flashing thoughts about being upset at one of the parents or being upset about the situation or, or the pain that their parent is feeling. Let the children be children. In conclusion, research has shown that it's valuable and healthy for a child's health to keep a healthy relationship with both parents after divorce. You might say, but you don't know my ex. Or you might say, well, I don't have to say anything my children see for themselves. Remember, we don't just communicate with words. We communicate with body language, with facial expressions. Try, try to encourage your child to freely love both their mother and their father. And remember that children have elephant ears. They listen. Be careful with what you say on the phone or in the next room. And remember to encourage grandma to do the same. If you find that you have so much pain about your ex that it's hard to manage or to mask in front of the children, I'd like to suggest two steps as a start, and notice this is just a start. Learn how to square breathe to change the physiology of your body to become more relaxed in your toughest moments. And consider doing seven days of the Metta, M-E-T-T-A, loving-kindness meditation about your ex. I will put both of these up on my website, psychologyamerica.com, in the next few days. Precept 2 for single parents and all parents. Maintain your position 
as an executive in the family. What do I mean by executive? Think of a corporation. You have the president, then you have the vice president, then you have the managers, then you have the employees. You as the parent in a healthy family need to be on top. The children need to be below the parent in the hierarchy. The best parenting is not authoritarian, meaning being all about the rules, harsh and rigid with no warmth. The best parenting is also not being all warmth and fun and no rules. The best parenting is called authoritative, meaning that there's warmth and there are also rules. How do you reinforce your position as the executive? By giving rules and then enforcing the rules. If they break the rule, follow through on a consequence. The more you follow through, the more your word has strength. You want what you say to be consistent with what you mean. And as they say, let your word be as consistent as gravity. What's the best way to punish or to give a consequence? It's to remove something, and the removal of that something causes them pain. I like to remove electronics for 24 hours. It's best not to remove something more than 24 hours because then it loses its power and you don't, you don't have leverage for the next day to remove it again. Note, don't ever remove sports. Some small rules in my house include no electronics at the dinner table. But if we're out, they can have them after dessert. There are also no electronics in the car, except if the trip is over an hour. The car is very intimate time. We are all in this little space together. This no electronics rule encourages us to talk or to enjoy music together. Precept 3. Teach the children to help. This one goes hand in hand with maintaining your position as executive. By giving out chores and then enforcing that they do the chores, you do two things. One, you're teaching them that when they live in a community, everyone helps. And number two, you're maintaining your position as the executive of the household. Even four- and five-year-olds can do little chores. They can set the table. They can put away the forks. They love to help. Frequent fights can happen when it comes to chores for teenagers. They're assigned a chore like empty the dishwasher and the teenager says, yes, okay. And then you wait and you ask again and again and again and you feel annoyed and then they feel annoyed that you keep asking because they're like, yeah, I said I would do it. I've found that the following is an excellent arrangement to avoid this. Make them accountable for one thing for the month in the house that no one else is accountable for. For example, sweeping the kitchen. Then give them a, a time window. For example, they're to do it between Thursday and Saturday at noon. You won't hound them. You won't ask about it. But you're going to do a check at 12.10. You check it. And then if they don't do it, there's a consequence. Let them choose the consequence in advance. They all think that they're going to do it. So they might even create a harsh consequence because of course they'll do it. You can tone down their consequence if you need to, but then 
follow through. Precept 4. Don't let a parenting schedule interfere with the letting go stage. Betty Carter and Monica McGoldrick have taught psychologists around the world about the developmental stages of family. For example, one stage is when a couple gets married. Will they successfully negotiate with their families of origin that now this is its own little entity, the two of them? How will they realign relationships to include the in-laws? And lastly, how will they negotiate living together, including household duties and chores? And that's even before the children arrive, which entails an entirely new set of negotiation. So, with the developmental stages of families, there is a stage for families with adolescents. The primary job of parents at this stage is to allow the adolescent to move towards independence. This begins at about age 12. At about age 12, it's healthy and natural for the children to start to become really interested in their friends and less interested in you. Alexander the Great was just 16 when his dad left him in charge of Macedonia. At age 17, Pelé won the first World Cup. Louis, Louis Braille invented the Braille system at age 15. And at age 14, Laura Decker sailed around the world solo. I bring up these examples because I want us to believe in our children and for us to remember that the child's job, starting age 12, is to move towards independence and our job is to let go and to let them flourish. Why does this get interfered with with single parents and divorce situations? Well, I think we are at risk because of that thing called the parenting schedule, where you divide when you get to see the children and you end up seeing less of your children, which is one of the most difficult things to face as parents in this situation. In New Jersey, most parenting schedules end up at 50-50. I know that it's different in other parts of the country, and I know that in Rio de Janeiro, where most of my maternal family resides, it's more common for the women to maintain full custody of the children, and then the fathers might see them every other weekend. So it does vary by region, but still, parents get less time with their children. So when they have them, it might be harder for them to let them go to see friends and do other activities that are away from them. So how do we do this? How do we allow them to move towards independence and let go? Here's how we don't do it. We don't have tears in our eyes and look lonely and sad when they go out with their friends. We don't make them feel guilty for leaving us. It's terrific if we let friends come to our home, if we welcome them. The best way to let go as parents is not only to allow them to enjoy their friends and activities and interests, but to have a full, enjoyable, and satisfying life of our own. Children can more freely have fun if they know that mom is okay and dad is okay. We ourselves need to join a club get involved with our place of worship, take a class. If we show independence, they in turn are more free to show their independence. Not only are we good role models for self-care, we help to remove that guilt that they might feel about wanting to take care of our emotions. And this leads us to number five. 
Precept 5. Care for yourself so that you can care for them. Nurturing yourself gives you the energy to be a better parent and better at everything all around. As a single parent, without the support of the spouse to help with all that's involved with maintaining a household and caring for children, without the shared income and shared expenses, there may be a lot less time available. What this means is that with the time that you do have, you need to maintain your energy as best as you can so that you can make the best use of the time. For that, self-care is critical. In my last podcast entitled Self-Care for Commitment and Commitment for Self-Care, it's a live episode, I talk about five things that I do to maintain my energy. These include aerobic exercise, even if just for 10 minutes, six days a week, good nutrition, following the rules of sleep hygiene, which I'm going to post on Facebook, and that those are rules for your best sleep, and more. Trust that the time you put into self-care, you will get it back by gaining energy. And this leads me to number six. Precept six, get support from family and friends. Who lives the longest? Research has found that people who have relationships live the longest. I remember a study about the people of Rosetta, Pennsylvania, who meet in their old age. They gather together to talk, to play cards, and they lived very long lives. There is a thing about some young people that I've met from New Jersey. They idealize the idea of moving to Colorado or California. And they imagine that moving to one of these places is going to fulfill all of their dreams. It might, but don't underestimate the value of the social support and the roots that you have wherever you are once you have children. This doesn't mean that you can't build a sense of community again if you move to the other side of the country, as my friends Dave and Cindy did. And in their case, it was because of their sport of tennis that they built up a huge community of friends within just a few months. Note that they were also empty nesters, a different life stage. Friends and family can be a tremendous help to a single parent, not only to nourish the parent emotionally with adult relationships, but to nourish the children with community and more people to love and to be loved by. When children have very few trusted adults in their lives, their vulnerability increases, and I don't mean the good vulnerability. Just yesterday, a patient explained about a babysitting exchange that she has with a friend of hers. They put their two daughters together while one of the parent goes out, and at the end of the evening, they come back together, they spend a little time before they go home. And lastly, research has shown that children can and do benefit from multiple attachment figures, meaning it doesn't have to be just mom or dad that they're attached to to achieve the psychological benefits of healthy attachments. Precept 7. Love, love, love them. One way that I love my children is by truly listening to them when we share meals together. A friend of mine, Andre DeWall, a chef at Andre's restaurant, taught me a beautiful tradition which I've been using for years at the dinner table with my children. 
and it's called Roses, Buds, and Thorns. So at dinner, each of us will, will tell the group what was our rose for the day, which is what was our favorite part of the day, what is our bud, which is what are we looking forward to, and what's our thorn. And the thorn is optional, and that is what was the worst part of our day. And they've all gotten used to it, and we all do it, and it's such a great way to exchange ideas and to find out how everyone's doing. It also teaches them to listen, so they are listening to each other. How does your child feel loved? May we all continue on our path to create loving and peaceful households, no matter what our circumstances. Do you want to teach your child about how to make the best of it even when they're disappointed? Consider purchasing my recently published book entitled There's Always Hope, A Story About Overcoming. It can be found on Amazon.com or for locals at Sparta Books. I wrote it with love for children 9 and under or to serve as a symbolic gift for an adult in your life who's in need of hope. Lastly, if you've enjoyed Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, support us at no cost by leaving us a rating on iTunes, sharing it with a friend, and pressing subscribe.